You're gonna dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You wanna get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. Welcome to the program. This episode, we're featuring two back-to-back conversations with art rap royalty, Witty Green and Open Mike Eagle. Strap in for an extended edition of the podcast, featuring two conversations exploring a process and more. Peace, everybody. It's your man, Willie Green. I'm here on Fly Fidelity, having a good time chopping up about all things record-making, all things audio, and just having a great time. Um, You can find me all over the internet, Twitter, Instagram. I'm Willie Green and the number one, or just head over to williegreenmusic.com. Everything is over there. Uh, We got a lot of great records out right now from Backwoods, you already know. Uh, Atheops and Church from Billy Woods. I told Bessie from Elucid, Metal Lung from Shrapnel. Uh, and there's a lot, lot more coming next year. So please stay tuned with us. Um, I'm getting ready to start my own next solo joint. That's going to be a while off, but we'll, we'll, we'll touch base on that too. I'm really intrigued and curious as to how you got into production and what that entry point looked like for you in the beginning. Did you learn an instrument when you were younger or did you just jump straight into the technical side of production? Uh, I definitely did start um, with traditional instruments, I guess you would say. Um, Really, I started playing drum set when I was about 10. Uh, I tried trumpet before then, but I was a very terrible trumpet player. Uh, So (laughs) we don't need to delve too far into that. Um, But yeah, you know, I always had keyboards and little stuff around my uncle is a musician uh he's my godfather so you know from when i was born his goal his goal was to is to get me uh playing music and get me into the band basically um so he gave me my first drum machine my first keyboard uh and then bought me my first drum kit so i started uh with a bit of you know traditional music background um you know i was in high school band and high school orchestra and the jazz band and all that. But I was also playing gigs with my uncle starting when I was about 15. Um, You know, they would, they would sneak me in the club and I would play and then I would sit in the, sit in the van during set breaks or, uh, and then come back and, you know, play the next set. So um, I definitely had that background, Um, you know, but then probably, I don't know when I was, 10, 11, 12, uh, started getting a lot more into hip hop. Um, you know, my cousins would give me these mixtapes and everything. Uh, and then in 93, I heard 36 Chambers. Uh, my cousin had it and I stole her CD. I think I still have her copy from back in the day. Um, sorry, Danielle. Uh, and, <laughs> that changed the whole game for me, for me. You know, I came from hearing music one way and then I heard what the RZA was doing and could not understand it in the best way. You know, I love records that make me say, 
holy shit, I don't understand what's happening, but I want to, you know? And that's how I felt uh, listening to 36 Chambers for the first time. It changed um, everything. Everything, everything. So, you know, went from there, got into high school. Again, was in the jazz bands and all that. So I studied jazz pretty, pretty significantly in high school. And then I went to music school, went to Berklee College of Music. Uh, I graduated from there in the early 2000s. Um, you know, and that was where I went from, I want to be a famous drummer to, wow, there's a lot of famous drummers in the world. I want to get into production, which sounds funny today because everybody makes beats. Everybody's a producer. Uh, but in 99, when I started college, it wasn't necessarily the case. You know, I went to music school thinking I was going to be a rock star and came out wanting to be a producer and an engineer. So it's through the drum machine that magnetically leads you to playing the drums. Being a drummer in those early years, how does that then impact the way you're approaching mixing drums later on? It has an enormous effect, uh, honestly, and I've just become to realize it more and more. Um, you know, being older now, I kind of look back and think about, you know, what I've done before and how it affects now. You get a little more perspective uh, when you get older, and it makes all the difference, really. Um, you know, I'm a bit known for my drums and how I get my drums smacking, but a lot of that comes from... I'm used to hearing the band from the perspective of the drum set, right? So growing up, I always heard everything with the drums really loud and in your face because that's where I was sitting in relation to the band. Even if we had monitors or whatever, you know, the drums were always right up front to me. So that's how I hear music because at my heart, I'm still a drummer, Um so it just, it affects everything. It affects my production um, because I think drums first. And a lot of us do, but, you know, a lot of my records that I've produced are drums, but the drums become the melody. They become the main focus almost. Um, and sometimes are the only element in there. And I freak them into melodic ideas and things like that. Because um, I just, I think percussion first always. And of course, there's an art behind this suspense and release within what you're learning and translating back then. Going back to this drum machine, how important was that moment in time growing as a growing period for you in terms of being your own audience and turning practice into purpose? You know, it was such a different time then and not to be like, you know, the old man in the room, but right. now, you know, I mean... You, you start to feel that way eventually. Um, but, you know, there was no there was no social media. There was no Internet when I got my first drum machine. I'm, I'm, I'm that kind of old. So everything I was doing, I was just it was just for fun. It was not for likes. It wasn't for streams. It wasn't for clout or whatever. It was just. I'm going to make a cool thing because I want to make a cool thing, you know, and I might play it for some of my friends. My sister didn't care what I was doing except for stealing her boombox, you know, like it was just, it was, it was, it was pure for the sense of, uh, for, 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 the, for, the, for the lack of a better word, where I was just making things that sounded good. And I try to maintain that as much as I can nowadays. Uh, and it's different because, I'm lucky that what I do is make records to put food on the table. So 
it's still fun. Making records is always fun. I've got a great job, but there's a different layer of responsibility behind it. I'm, I, I make shit sound cool all day, but at the end of the day, I got to go home and make sure that there's food for my son and for my wife and that my family is taken care of, you know? It was an innocence back then, wasn't it? You talked about those days being much different than today, of course. In what ways do you think the role of a producer has evolved in your mind since then? Because there are a lot of changes. They overlap well, as well. Yeah, I mean, there's so many changes. And specifically nowadays, you know, the producer really does, if not everything, most of the things, you know, like a producer is also your engineer now, you know, the producer is mixing the records a lot of times, you know, in the industry, they're always talking about wearing multiple hats. Um, I mean, and that's cool, but my favorite times are when I can focus on just one part of it. If I'm just engineering something, I can focus just on making things sound good, you know, as opposed right. to thinking about, well, what is the beat doing? What are the 808s doing? What are the vocals doing? You know, because um, the production isn't just making the beat, it's guiding the vocalists. It's getting the best performance out of them. It's making sure that the right. song is going to translate and be magical for everyone. And that's part of engineering, but there are different roles that are at play. There, there are different needs. And I, I like when I can split them up in monotask rather than, well, I got to do it all. A lot of times I do it all, but it's kind of a luxury now if I just get to record and there's a vocal producer in the room, or if I'm just the vocal producer and someone else is pushing the buttons, being able to separate and really focus in on one aspect of it uh, is a nice luxury at this point. Fucking bullshit, man. Yo, you see Andy? Fucking super, you seen him? Andy, how the fuck I gotta always come find you, man? What the fuck is the deal? I told you two weeks ago, my ceiling in my bathroom about to fall the fuck in. We got a leak. I'm scared to take a shower in there, man. Damn, and the fucking heat ain't on this goddamn December, nigga. We freezing up there, man. I got my baby up there. Stateside bank got the right to raise. Fight the power. Niggas rather light the haze. Fight the powder. These days there's no such thing as cowards. Metal fling after hours. Radio Raheem did it. Trying to get TV sets in the whip tenant. Ain't finished till his rims around the world. Spin the wheel of fortune. Tell you, girl, ain't gonna be no abortion. Finally getting out the slums. Kingdom come. Hella high water. Gentrification. Word of the day. Here comes that court order. Now, you're originally from Boston, but you come to Brooklyn, I believe, in the mid-noughts. What is it that sticks out from attending Berkeley College, which you mentioned, of course, a couple of minutes ago, that still has a lasting value on what you do today? Oh, tons. Um, I mean, I actually, I was born in Hartford, Connecticut, um, and then I, I, and I moved to Boston specifically to go to Berkeley, and then when I graduated, uh, I opened a studio there with a few of my friends uh, that I, I graduated with. Um, you know, but the thing with Berkeley is, uh, I mean, first, it's a world-class music school. I learned a lot of things there not just production, not just engineering, but I learned music theory. Uh, I learned ear training where, you know, I can 
sing a little bit. You know, I can uh, enough to like guide a vocalist. I can sing intervals. I can sing harmonies, and I can connect with vocalists or instrumentalists on that level. Not just well, the beat is dope, so you know, do your thing. You know, leaving space for the artist to do their thing is fine. But if I can talk to them on their level and within their mindset, it's much more effective. Um, which is why I do a lot of, you know, kind of the indie R&B stuff around here, too, because I can produce a singer in their vocal section or a rapper and it's different techniques. It's There, there are different needs there. And I, I have all that knowledge. You know, music school isn't necessary for you to be successful in the, in the industry, but it's not bad. More knowledge is never bad for someone. Not 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 in this application. So the more I have just in the back of my brain that I learned about conducting when I took conducting two 20 years ago, if I'm recording strings for a project, I may still hop out there and conduct the string, the string ensemble. You know, if if we need someone to do that, I like I'm capable of doing that. Um, so it's just more tools in my bag that I can pull out when necessary mentioned the back of your brain i wondered if we could go into the back of your brain right now and reminisce on your earliest moments learning you know about this process we're talking about take me through this moment you learned distinction between a song taking on its own life and telling you what to do as opposed to you telling a song what to do can you speak to any earliest education about that yeah there are two enormous examples that taught me exactly that thing uh the first one is the first session i'd ever did with billy woods um right before i moved to new york i heard uh supercron flight brothers emergency powers uh which is woods's old group long before arm and hammer that's right um and i heard it and at first i just I didn't get it. You know, I, I told him this story myself. I, I didn't get it, you know, because Woods's delivery and, and, and his style is so different that if you're not ready for it, you may just not understand it. Um, and so I didn't get it at first. And then after a while, you know, I was like, yeah, I'm not feeling this. And a friend of mine at the time was like, no, 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 play that rent control joint again. I really like that one. And we listened to it together and it clicked. And it's like a light bulb literally went off. I'm like, oh, shit. Yo, I really get this now. This is really dope. So the first thing I did when I moved to New York was I emailed Backwoods, told them who I was, maybe sent a couple beats in there just so they kind of knew what I did. And I I, I wanted to set up a meeting with Supercron. Um, and, you know, there were two very valuable lessons here. First, I emailed. I didn't hear back. And so I followed up. Always follow up because Woods will say himself, he missed the first email and then he got the second one and he wrote back. If I hadn't followed up, would not be here today. I'd be doing something else. If I wasn't with Backwoods, I'd probably be selling insurance or something, you know. Um, so always follow up. That was the first thing. But then we met, we listened to some beats and it was all good. We decided we're going to do, you know, we're going to start working on a project. So we got into the session and it's funny, I still actually have the DVD backup of the first session I ever did with Woods. It's around the studio in here somewhere uh, in 2007. And we did, the first song we did was the first song that was on Cape Verde, the last last Supercon album called Reggie Miller. Uh, Still one of my favorite joints with Woods. We've done, at this point, hundreds of songs together. It's pretty crazy. Uh, Like we were talking about the other day, it's been 
15 years, I think, that we've been working together. So it's wild. But this was the first one. We did Reggie Miller. Um, and he does his first verse, Ron Book's Pure Gold. Uh, I can't even spit it because I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up. And I'm sitting there listening and I'm like, hmm. You know, this is like the woods flow. I wonder if I can get him to kind of straighten it out and do this. And in, in, in the back of my mind, like I'm talking about, someone, it was just like, you know, just shut up and let him rap. You don't have to control everything. Just sit back and just see where this goes. Um, you know, Ryan Book's pure gold. Greatest story never told. Pawn Shop said 25 beans sold. And <laughs> he's doing this verse. And I'm just like, you know, as it goes. And then on the playback, I'm like, oh, I get it. The same feeling I had when I was listening to Rent Control. And I'm like, I get it. I need to sit back and let the artist do the artist thing and guide them, not control them. And I could have ruined the whole relationship right there if I had started trying to tell Woods how to rap. And it's crazy in 2022, the idea of someone trying to tell Billy Woods how to rap. But in 07, when I didn't know any better, that's where I was trying to come from. And it was one of those things of, yo, sit back, let them cook, and then we see, you know, where it's going to go. And it was a similar thing, same deal with Open Mike Eagle. Um, we did... I produced his record Nightmares. It's probably 08, 09, I think. Um, and he had heard the beat on a beat tape I had done called Of Heroes and Villains. And he reached out online. We hadn't even met each other in person yet. And he was like, yo, I heard this beat. I really dig it. I want to I wanna do something over it. And I'm like, yeah, sure, go ahead. When I first made it, I didn't think anybody would ever rap on it you know i was like and eh, this is just like a nice joint i'm gonna put it on this beat tape no one's ever gonna spin on this how would they ever rap on it and then mike sent me back the rough mix right and i remember i was i was listening to it late at night i was working night to the time i got home so it was probably two three in the morning and he sent it over and again i didn't get it on first listen i'm like yo there's like so much open space in here you know the lines just kind of go and then you sit back and think i'm like ah man i don't know should i suggest this i guess then i was like no you know what i don't get it but i still dig it maybe let's just leave it alone and let mike do what he's gonna do with it because i didn't think anyone was gonna rap over it i had no idea and that turned into nightmares you know a amazing song with an amazing artist and that really is the key where it's like, yo, you can offer all the insight in the world, but sometimes your best move is just to chill out and sit back and let, let's see what somebody else is going to bring to the table. So true to the way you collaborate with artists now, back then it was very much a process of honoring a song or a project and whatever that artist wanted to do on their terms. Yeah, it's really important to do that and... At the time, I didn't even readily understand that the way I do now, um, you know, because I work with a lot of indie artists. I work with right. mostly indie artists. And so while they come to me for their input, and I'm happy to give that, they're also coming to me to make the records that they want, that they want to have for their lives, right? Like, it's not often, you know, sometimes with some of the bigger artists, but it's not a labor of we're going to do this to go get this money. It's a labor of love. Like I'm going to invest in this for myself. This is my dream. I want to do this and I have ideas on how I want to do it. So it's not my job to come in and be like, 
no, your dreams are wrong. You need to rap like this or you need to sing like this. Like what? Like that? that's just it's right. a terrible way to operate. And I think certainly in the indie sphere where these artists want to just sing their songs how they want to sing their songs. So it's not my job to come in and change that. My job is to bring the best out of them and make whatever it is that they're dreaming as close to that dream as possible. Well, speaking of dreams, circling back to that 15 plus year relationship with Woods you were just talking about, is there a story off the top of your head that you think encapsulates that bond and moment in time back then in terms of you uh, growing together and growing through this creative sequence we're talking about? Can you speak to any specific memory that encapsulates that time and memory? Yeah, you know, there's... That's interesting. There, I mean, there's a few. I can. The first time I ever saw him, the first like the, that first session that we had um, before we even recorded. But when he came out to the studio to listen to, to listen to beats, um, at the time I was managing this really big studio in Times Square. And so, you know, I had all set up. I bought beers. I had everything all set up. I was like, Billy Woods is coming in. I'm going to impress him. We're in Studio A, big consoles, all this stuff. Yeah. And he had texted me like, yeah, getting off the train, going to be there in a second. And I went down to the front door to open it to let it, to, 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 to find him because it's like on 48th Street. Like the door is kind of hard to see. And, of course, I'm standing out there and I'm realizing – I don't know what this man looks like because he doesn't show his face anywhere. <laughs> and so I'm standing at the door and I see somebody walk by, facing a book, walking through Times Square, walking down 48th Street, facing his book, facing a book, you know, swooping by, you know, pedestrians or whatever, but just completely absorbed in something on a whole different level than all these other assholes that are walking around Times Square. And then and missed the door. He just walked right on past. And then you know, eventually he circled around and came back. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is Woods, but that's like the most Billy Woods thing in the world, right? All like right. he's on such a different level, deep in some knowledge that no one around him is on the same page at all. It's um, an aura. Exactly. You know, and that's just like the most Woods thing uh possible, you know. Um that always stands out. You know, this is this year is the 10th anniversary of History Will Absolve Me, um, which was a big turning point for both of our careers. Uh, that was the first album that he did after Supercron broke up. Um, you know, we did Cape Verde and through a number of circumstances, uh, the, the, the group split up after that. There was no tour. We weren't really able to work the album. Um, and so it was a little bit dicey as far as, you know, the outlook on what was going to happen with Backwoods and what was going to happen with Woods himself. You know, and he even said when we were making it, he was like, yo, you know, um, this doesn't work. I might have to do something else besides rap. You know, this rap thing might not really be working out. At that, at the same time, I had gotten laid off from that job at the big studio in Manhattan uh, because the economy crashed in 2008. And by, right. and by February of 2009, I was out of a job. And all I was, you know, I was on unemployment. I talked to my wife. I was like, look, I get nine months of unemployment. 
give me eight months to secure work in the audio field and that doesn't work, I'm going to call your uncle or call whoever and find a regular job, right? Because we had, we weren't married yet, but we had just moved in together and all this stuff. I'm like, I can't screw this up now. I just moved in with her. I'm trying to marry her, all, all this stuff, right? And so we're working on History Will Absolve Me. And that was just the passion project that was going on for both me and Woods following both things in our lives kind of falling apart. Um, and, you know, obviously it caught on and we're here today, but if that album didn't do what it did at the time, I don't know if either one of us would still be in the industry, certainly not in the same way. You know, um, I did find some other work doing, I was doing corporate audio recording meetings for bankers and stuff like nothing glamorous, but it was pushing faders and not pushing a pencil around a page or whatever. And I was able to continue making that album. And, you know, that was a huge life change, uh, changing point for both of us. It really goes back to what you were talking about earlier. How do you not send that second email, that follow-up email? And I guess my point is, I'm saying it to say that you both go in a distance is what made this work and go full circle for the both of you. Yeah, you know, we both have it. We both have, we, we we have similar mindsets on a lot of things, um, but also, you know, specifically on the idea just of hard work you know neither one of us is out with that you know with our handout looking for looking for whatever looking for help looking for an alley-oop or something it's just like no we're gonna go get this all right let's go get it you know we we yeah. work hard and we're dedicated to the craft that we've chosen uh which which is what really makes it work um because, I mean, we chose not just indie rap, but a very avant-garde side of indie rap, you know? Um, and we both do things differently. But we believe in the mission, and we believe in the records. Um, and that part has never changed. So as long as we're both there and our eyes are focused on just making the best records possible, it's going to work. Absolutely. You talked about your old studio, what was that old studio setup like versus the studio you now have, of course, a greenhouse? Yeah. I mean, I love my studio very much, but different, just different ballparks, different stadiums, really. Uh, the studio I was working at at the time was called Legacy. Uh, before that, it was called Right Track. Um, and when I started working there, it was the biggest studio in New York City. We had six rooms. One of them was a 3,500 square foot orchestral room. So we were doing Broadway shows, orchestras, Yo-Yo Ma would come in, like like like, like that kind of stuff all the time. Um, big stars like Mariah Carey would record there, Beyonce, Jay-Z, you know, like cream of the crop um, clientele. You know, and I would go home and make beats in my bedroom. And when I got laid off, you know, I just moved in with my now wife and we had gotten a two bedroom because I'd had to have a studio in there for the work for, for me to work. Um, you know, so she's always held me down for that kind of thing, supporting me to be able to make my my music and my art, um, you know, and since leaving the bedroom six years ago. I've been renting different spots around Brooklyn. Um, 
And the spot I'm in now, I'm just very comfortable in. You know, I've got the gear that I want. You know, I've been able to save up over years and buy the things that I want. Uh, you know, I've got some gear sponsorships and partnerships. So I've got the stuff in here that I want. Uh, and I've got the vibe in here that I want. Like, I come in every day. And it's nice. I come through the door. I look around. I'm like, yo, all this shit in here is mine. And that feels really good, you know. Um and knowing like, okay, I put this together. It's all wired and customized and everything for how I want to work. You know, the knobs are in the positions I can reach out and grab whatever I need at any moment. Like it's set for me. Um, and that's nice. Cause I can sit down, I come in, I sit out with my cup of coffee every morning and I just dive into my work and everything is working the way that I want it to. So I can provide the best work for my, for my clients and my artists. Let's dive into that work and let's dive into this vibe you're talking about. What are some of the things that you actually like to do as a producer to help create and maintain the vibe in a studio? Oh, yeah. I mean, it really is. The vibe is the number one thing. Like, I've got great speakers. I've got great microphones. I'm not the only person in Brooklyn with great speakers and great microphones. You know, lots of people have the gear, but I know what gear to use when. Like, we've got a mic closet here. Um my studio, the greenhouse is part of a larger facility called Brooklyn Recording Paradise. And we've got a large mic locker with a lot of different things. So I can pick the right microphone for the right artist. When we did, I told Bessie with Lucid here, I set up a couple microphones and heard his voice on a few mics. And we were like, nope, that's the one, put the other ones away. You know, I have the flexibility to cater the, my gear choices and all that kind of stuff to my clients. Um, but when you come in, it's comfortable. You know, the place is clean. We keep it up nice. We've got a lounge out there. We've got a kitchen area. You can come in and you can do your record here in comfort. You know, you can do it in private. There's another studio down the hall, like I said. But when you come in the green, when you come in the greenhouse, when you come into my room, it's your studio for that day. And I want you to feel that way. So I've got the Philips Hue, like the Wi-Fi lights. And so I have color settings for everyone who comes in. We set the lights. Maybe you like your booth purple. Maybe you like it red. Well, I save that. And so every time you walk in, the light settings are just how you want them as an artist. And that's the thing. It's like, oh, when you come in, it's preset for you. You know, um, I really think about how, Engineering is the service industry, same way as if I was waiting tables. You know, if you have a special client mm. at a restaurant, they have their special table. You always seat them at their table. Maybe you know what drinks they like. You have their drinks ready. Whatever it is, that extra step. When you come in here, if I know, okay, well, so-and-so wants the Earl Grey, but their producer wants, you know, the English breakfast tea or whatever it is. Like we have it ready when you come in. You come in, your tea's ready or your room temperature water or whatever, how, 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 however you like it. You know, if you like coffee, we have, oh, they want half and half, but they want whole milk. Whatever it is, we want to cater to the person to make sure that when they come in, they feel the studio is theirs as much as mine while they're in here recording. Between Canyon and Shaw, throwing my weight around and watching my form Run up and double the scar, you talk out your neck, I curse for my call This cause and effect
effect They searching my face, Allah knows best My shadow is as big as my light Swallowing whole, absorb control Gods and gold and earth metals Stone the magnet, biohack the planet Let's fall back a bit Turtles all the way down Ladder stack from center, what you say now? I can't keep the same style So you can't hold it even They call the law, but never call it even Sucker, well I's beneath her My goal is to be as flexible as possible for how the client wants to work. And so a lot of that is how I have my studio set up in advance. You know, when my goal is when the artist walks through the door, hypothetically, they could walk right into the booth and I could hit record and we could go. Right. So I've already got my software open. I use Cubase. So Cubase is open. I've got a template that's got vocal tracks all ready to go. So you could walk right in. The mic has been tested. The headphones have been tested. You can step right up, arm a track, hit record, and we're and 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 and, and we're going. You know, um, my idea is that I want to be a transparent kind of conduit to make the song happen. So I want to be able to work fast. If the artist wants to work slow, if they want to sit, everyone sit down and chill for a minute and chit chat. Sure, we can do that. I want to be able to ramp up my speed to match them or slow down to match them and be comfortable that way with whatever my workflow is. Um, you know, the I believe like the the scariest place, the most intimidating place on earth to be is in the booth in front of a microphone about to perform a song for the first time that may be really personal. You know, um, I don't do a whole lot of like pop party type stuff in here. It's not really the clients I work with as much. You know, we do some, we have a good time, but you know, if someone's going to come in and write a really personal song about their life and perform it, that's a very intimidating place to be. So I want them to feel comfortable. I want them to feel comfortable with me and with themselves just to be able to go ahead and do that, you know? Um, and part of that is I had to make sure all the tech stuff, all the gear stuff fades into the background. You know, you come in, your mic's not going to be distorted. Your headphones aren't going to be too loud or too quiet or whatever. I check on all that stuff. If you're not comfortable as an artist, you can't record your best music. If you're thinking, oh, I would love to sing, but every time I sing loud, the mic distorts. That's my fault if that's happening, you know? And I and it's my fault if it continues to happen. I have to catch that and adjust on the fly. You know, when the artist is here, my phone is away. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not texting during takes or anything like that. During a, during a session with a vocalist, that's what I'm doing for that four hours, five hours, whatever it is. Now, it's a lot of weight you're talking about, but there are, with the same token, a lot of artists who do do help lessen that weight. You mentioned Elucid. Elucid's an artist mm -hmm. that does a lot of edits and special effects during his creation process. Mm -hmm. What was the creative process like in mixing, I told Bessie? Oh, I mean, it's great to work with Elucid because we've done so much at this point, um, you know, all the way back to Save Yourself and... Um, race music the first arm and hammer album um right. we've worked together so long that there's a trust there and that's really dope and really important for me um when i'm mixing for a lucid i'm i know all right i can just try some stuff 
I can go down a rabbit hole for an hour and try this really mm. weird effect. Uh, if he doesn't like it, he doesn't like it. And you can't get precious about, oh, well, I spent an, a half hour on that delay. All right, well, yeah, but he don't like it. So what, what are we going to do? Like f- force someone to like, you know what I mean? You know, so you can't right. get precious about that kind of stuff. But he's going to be open to whatever it is I want to try. If I say, yo, let's run this vocal through a guitar amp because that sounds cool. He's going to be like, bet, do that. That sounds cool. And that openness with the artistry lets me do my best work because, you know, in my heart, I feel like I'm an inventor. I'm an explorer. I want to try different things. And I don't want to sound like anybody else, but that's what their records are for. I want to do something that's unique to what we're doing right now and captures the essence of the song that we're making. Um and Elucid trusts me to know that my intentions are just to make his music as, as great as possible. So there's a lot of leeway there. Let's talk about Haram. You've mentioned, of course, Arm and Hammer. Mm. I wanted to talk about Haram as sort of an example of another turning point for both yourself and Arm and Hammer. Mm-hmm. Knowing how much more of a restrained texture Haram features than, I guess, any other Arm and Hammer release. I'm curious as to what kind of role or saturation played within a mixing of Alchemist's loops and how much did that lend itself to the final product, both creatively and technically? Oh, yeah. I mean, saturation is a big part of anything I mix because I, I consider myself a, a a distortionist, you know? So mm. whether small degrees or large degrees, like you hear on a lot of these backwoods records, you know, if I can grime something up, you know, I'm going to do it. Uh, Haram was a little bit different. Um, and it was a little bit closer actually to mixing something like Dower Candy or Known Unknowns with Blockhead producing. Really? Um, yeah, because Blockhead and Alchemist, while very different producers, are both so supremely talented and also, you know, experienced. Like, they've done a ton in the industry and, you know, they know, they know what they're doing. They don't want... They're not necessarily coming to me to change up the beats, you know? It's more like... You know, kind of put some polish on them, clean up what needs to be cleaned up. Well, you don't have to just touch everything, you know, just just because it's there. The the beats come in more or less what they're looking for, but it might be, you know, just make the drums bang a little bit harder. You know, make sure the sample's nice and clear. More of a polishing type of thing rather than let me go in and have to do a bunch of surgery or X, Y, and Z or really kind of change things. Um, With them... And particularly Alchemist, you know, because that was the first album I mixed for Alchemist, the only album I mixed for Alchemist uh, to this point, knock on wood, Al, let's do some more, Um, you know, but like, you don't come in like I'm going to change Alchemist drum sounds. (laughs) That's not, you know, you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's, that's like, you can't approach it that way. And, you know, he very nicely, he was great to work with Al's an amazing person, super great, easy to work with. But it was made pretty clear early on, you know, don't reinvent the wheel here, just, you know, put the gloss on it. Uh, And which is fine, you know, because I know, as long as I know what to expect, then I can work in that direction. Um, But I had a lot more free range when it came to vocals and some of that kind of you know and 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 the vocal treatments uh elucid does a lot of the editing and vocal effects um 
I would say probably 60, 40, 65, 35, my effects and then plus his effects. Um, and we both think similarly when it comes to delays and spatial effects and distortion, stuff like that. So anytime Lucy sends me something, I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. Put that in. I don't, I don't need to touch it. Um, but we have that we had that relationship where he's open to any effects I'm putting on. Um, so it was a balance, but I was more focused on vocal effects there rather than let's do some really big stuff on the beats, you know, cause if I like do a delay on something at some point, the note will come back from Al. Yeah. Let's turn that delay off. And so by a couple of songs in, it's like, all right, we're not going to add any delays or verbs to stuff. Just make the beats right and leave them there, and then we'll build the vocals off of that. Got it. What about Aethiopes? What can you tell me about developing, I guess, a framework around mix and preservations, minimalist instrumentals, where it's a different situation where many of the samples he uses are on a different arrangement than Alchemist's. Can you talk about your decision-making, mixing some of the tracks on that project and some of the techniques you use differently than with Aram? Yeah, Aethiopes is it was an interesting one to mix. Preservation and with full respect, this is not any kind of shade. Preservation is very particular. Sure. Um even more than, you know, if Lucid is on the, you know, let's just see whatever you do green end of the spectrum. Prez is even past the alchemist and blockhead end of the spectrum where, you know, he's very, very specific and he's got an incredible ear where he would hear things. He was like, yo, there's a weird crackle in one part of the loop and this thing right here. And I'm like, mm. I don't hear what you're saying. And, you know, preservation is one of the few, one of the few people who come in and sit with me at least for mixed notes. I'm generally am mixing by myself. I send the files out. I get feedback. I do my recalls and my changes, and I send it back. Uh, with preservation, he came in three or four times during the mixing process to sit down and go through all the notes. And so he's standing here next to me, and he was like, that's it right there. And I'm like, Doug, I, I've got good ears. I'm not hearing it. And then we would finally get in there, and I would see what he was talking about. And I'm like... Now that I know what you're saying, you're 100% right. Mm -hmm. But I would have never heard that if you hadn't opened me up to it. And it's incredible to work with someone with that level of detail and they're hearing that level of understanding and nuance to the textures that they deal with. Uh, Kenny Siegel is similar. Uh, like mastering for uh, mastering for him, I didn't mix Hiding Places. Kenny does his own mixes. He's a very good mixer. You uh, mastered it, right? I mastered Hiding Places. Yeah, I didn't mix it. But going back and forth with Kenny might be something, you know, like, uh, you know, when this this part, the kick drum just feels a little bit oversaturated and this and, that, and like really nuanced stuff. I'm like, Yo, how did you hear that? But again, I make the change and I'm like, yo, how did you hear that? Like, that's an amazing note. You know, I do my very best work. I think, you know, I'm nice at what I do. I don't have to be shy about it, but I also have to be open for what other people are telling me. You know, yeah. when you're mixing, mixing is such a masochistic thing. You know, same thing with mastering too, but you do your very best to make it sound how you think it should sound. And then you send it to someone for them to tell you everything that's wrong with it. 
<laughs> and, and it's, you know, and that's, that's the job. Um, and if it's a good day, maybe there's just a couple things, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, with Prez, it was just details that I might not have been opened up to, but each experience working with somebody should make you grow as an artist or as an engineer or whatever role you play in it. Every experience in life should make you grow a little bit just as a person, you know? So, you know, it's a matter of you think you thought you were patient. Well, maybe you need to learn a little bit more patient, a little bit more patience. Oh, well, you thought you were hearing that. Well, you actually need to listen in even deeper than you thought that you were. And just understanding the bar that's leveled up when you're dealing with these people who are just incredible, like preservation and alchemist and blockhead and Kenny and all the people like, I mean, we work with ill producers at backwards. We don't play around. So like the, the bar is high. So I got to step up every time. I'm, Super happy with the mixes for Athiopes, and I was pretty happy with the first and second round of mixes for Athiopes. But seeing where we needed to get to for preservation standards kind of opens you up to like, oh, okay, you know, maybe I wasn't, you know, hearing the the, the right. I don't want to say the right thing. I don't know. It just kind of sets up that oh, all right, well, we got to step up a little bit more just to make sure that we're, you know, that, 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 that we're hitting all the buttons here. Right. Um, because there's somebody right here who is super duper detailed. You know, the thing with this indie rap thing um, that we do is that in some ways to the untrained ear, a lot of this can sound sloppy. There's record static all over the place. So there's this, there's that. It's like, nah, this is, finely controlled chaos you know right. where it might seem wild but we did it that way on purpose you know there aren't really accidents that happen or the acts or there are accidents that did happen we were set up to do that like it's by I love design it. yeah exactly accidents by design you know which sounds crazy but that's what it is like oh i don't know what it'll sound like if i put the vocal through this weird guitar pedal sweet Let's do it then, you know, and setting ourselves up, especially in a digital world, when we record in computers, I want to get the computer to do random things. Everything is repeatable inside the computer. But if I take a vocal, I'm like, all right, well, let's just throw it into that delay that was on the guitar and throw it in real hot so it's going to distort. I don't know what it's going to sound like, but let's find out. And maybe it won't do it the same way every time. But that's dope. Let's just see what we get. I think what you're talking about is very much the blueprint, the personification of the blueprint of what Backwards does, in my opinion, of course. Mm. Going back to mastering, why mm. do you think that mastering is the last and arguably least understood step in a recording process? Why do you think that is? Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of master. I, I have a lot of very good friends who are mastering engineers and mastering only engineers. Like that's all that they do. And there's a lot of mastering engineers out there that for a long time, there was like the last dark art of the music industry. And people don't really know why you need mastering, but they know that you do. And we don't really know what it does, but we know that you have to have it. And I think mastering engineers kind of leaned in on that a little bit, just to kind of keep that, that, that mythos around it. Um, right. I, 
I mean, I do both. I do mixing. I do mastering. So I, I'm very clear on the differences between the two. It is surprising to me sometimes when people just don't really know, but I don't have the perspective for it because my whole life is this audio thing, you know, but for those who don't really catch it, I just kind of break it down. Like mixing is taking all the elements of one song and putting them together in the right way. Mastering is the polish on top, you know, for a single. And then, but when you're dealing with mastering an album, it's the polish, but it's also making sure that all of the songs in this one larger package and this one overall theme, that all the smaller elements in it fit within the same universe, fit within the same space of this album. Right. You know, um, like it's a weird experience to listen to a record where to listen to an album where one song, the vocals are like kind of buried and very muffled. You can't tell it. And then the next one, everything's bright and clear and hi-fi. It's like, yo, like <laughs> where, where am I listening? Like, like, you know, like an album is a journey. It should take you on a path and you should know that artist better by the end of the album. Like I'm old school. I'm still an album listener. I do playlists and singles and all that, but when I can listen to someone's album, and hear that journey that they're trying to take me on the longer arc. I love that, you know, and the nuances into making that, like I spend a lot of time nudging things, nudging tracks millisecond by millisecond for the right amount of silence between the songs. Right. You know, and I know the songs are probably going to get pulled apart and put on whatever playlists and no one's going to care about that. But for the few people, whoever, and Thankfully, that's backwards listeners. They seem to care about this, who are listening to the album as an album. That silence between the songs, the space between the songs is really important. And it, it, it shapes that experience. You know, if I'm coming off, if, I, if, if track seven is really intense and it's huge and it's dense and it's screaming at you by the end. I might need to give you an extra second between songs just as a breath, just to let you come down before the next one. Or maybe I don't. Maybe I want to keep the energy up and then take it up even higher. That creates tension within the album. That now is giving the listener a different feel just by how I'm spacing the tracks out just by how I'm leveling things like, Oh, okay. Maybe this next song is a little bit hotter than the last one. So when you listen as a package, the intensity grows and grows and I'm taking you, I'm, I'm, I'm amplifying the journey that the music is taking you on by making sure that the playback of the album matches that. Planetary orbits and tempo numbers, ancient mathematical astronomy, midnight's children, time and space reunited, selling the true time, the valley of fear, tells the unrest, milk from my breast, imagine communities outside my life, Washington at a latitude of 77 degrees, outside my life, newer time reckoning, time flies like an arrow, me and a few witches on a broom. Brass, I love brass. It's it was a very unique uh process to do that. Um I did 
I produced Furies pretty early on. Um, and this all happened in 2020. So I produced Furies right before the world shut down, right before Rona hit, maybe. Um, or maybe just after, actually. I remember, so right before the pandemic hit, I happened to have been in Texas that weekend before. It was my mother-in-law's birthday. So we were all down there. And I remember being in her house and talking to Woods on the phone about the whole Adult Swim single thing that they were doing. More right. mother Woods, he had these samples uh, that he wanted me to use. And he was like, Green, you're the one. I'm like, okay, we're, we're talking about it. Someone's honking all crazy outside. Whatever. <laughs> They're mad because they can't get on the pod, too. Um, you know, but we were talking about it, and I came back, and then the world shut down. And so I made the beat. I sent it to Woods. I sent it to More Mother. That was the first time I had worked with More Mother um, on my own production, at least. She had done some guest work on Shrines. Shrines, yeah. Um, but so we started doing that. And then that was such a, such a successful joint, that single, um, that kind of sparked the idea to do the album. And then I also produced the next song right after that, the the Blues Remember Everything the Country Forgot. Because yeah. um, I remember having a, con a conversation with Woods. I was like, yo, these are my only two I did on the album. Is it too much Willie Green at the beginning of Brass? These two that are very harmonious together but different than a lot of other stuff he was like nah that's the vibe we've set him off with this and then we just take off um but so so i did those two and then you know we're in quarantine the whole time but my wife was pregnant with our son my son clyde was born in october of that year uh, end of october and so i was on paternity leave all of all of November, basically. And there was a unique thing due to some other things that More Mother was doing. We had to have the album finished by the end of 2020. It had to be turned in by them for whatever kind. I don't, I don't know what else she was doing, but she's doing everything. She's amazing. So contractually, it had to be done by the end of 2020. So I came back from my paternity leave right after Thanksgiving and that was the first album I mixed when I came back. Uh, we were still in quarantine, so I actually mixed that in my living room. Um, I had my pandemic set up, so I had small speakers, and you know, I, I, I had a good, I had a good setup there. And you know, during during the Rona, during the quarantine, I I stayed working the whole time. Um, so that was one of the things that I did uh, right when I came back. But that was fresh off of, okay, I'm dealing with a brand newborn to, okay, mix this very big, very important album, uh, and you've got four weeks to do it. And so we just dove in and sending things furiously. Um, you know, all credit to Woods. You know, Woods' executive produces a lot of albums on the label, but that one, he did everything. He organized everything before I even came back. You know, I'm usually involved in, like, file file uh, organization stuff, but Woods did everything on it. I came back, mixed it, and we turned it in, and that was it. Do you find it easier to mix a song if you've produced it, knowing that you've lived with the process from the beginning and, and you're sort of absorbed and sort of mixing it along the way? Is that easier? Oh, man, that's a really good question. Um, I think the answer is sometimes. <laughs> um, you know, I, 
I do mix as I go. When I'm producing, I have to be doing some mixing um, just to make sure that the beat's feeling right. Like the drums need to sound right as I'm producing. If not, I'm just going to hate the beat anyway. And I'm, it's, I'm not going to make it as well as I could. So there's always some mixing that's going on. Um, you know, one big part of it is I can just do whatever I want with the beat as long as the vocalist signs off on it because it's not a producer who's like, no, don't do that to my beat. I'm mm. the producer. I decided that it's all good. So it takes out a little bit of of the of 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 the check-in type stuff. Um but you know you can get in your head doing your own stuff. You know, um, if I'm mixing for somebody else, I can be a little bit more objective and be like, okay, this snare drum is too tubby. I am going to notch this out and I can just be objective about it. With me, it's like, oh man, did I just choose the wrong snare drum? And I, you, you get in your head about stuff where it's harder to be objective yeah. about your own work. Uh, so it's a give and take. You don't, I, It's hard to be objective, but there's a freedom of, well, I guess I can, if I hate the snare, I'll just change the snare. You know, if a snare drum comes in from somebody else, I'm not necessarily going to replace it with a different snare sample. If it's mine, I can do that. Well, what about arrangement and arrangement changing? Can you give me a recent example of mixing a song as part of the arrangement process and how that process led to major shifts through the song's evolution? Mm, um, I would say Ghoulie off i told bessie is one for sure um lasso did that beat it's another lasso is a beast we really do actually <laughs> work with a, <laughs> we work with a lot of great producers yo uh ooh, it's no it's no joke it's no game um yeah you know lasso Lasso is dope because the files he sends you he always has good sounds his stuff always sounds really good i love mixing lasso stuff because I don't really have to do a lot. I can do a light touch and just make sure that all just really blends. And it's more of a vibe thing rather than, oh, these hi-hats are awful. I got to fix them. There's not fixing when it comes to lasso. So I really, you know, listening to what Elusa was saying, so much of it is, okay, well, what what is the story of the song telling me? Where am I going with this, right? Like, if you don't listen to the lyrics, you mix Ghoulie like a pop record, it's going to sound insane. These things don't, these things don't match. And so taking the vibe from the vocals of what a lucid is saying and from where the beats going, you know, that was the one where, you know, smile lines, when we, when we first recorded smile lines, lucid was like, distort my vocal, crunch it up. We did that on the day of the, of the vocal session, the vocal, sound that's on the record was 90% there at the end of recording that song because he was in the room and told me what he wanted. Nope. For Ghoulie, I was like, well, I know that we distorted the vocal on Smile Lines, but I really, for this one, I want to take it in a strange place and unsettling type of place. And, you know, the dope thing about my studio being in a bigger facility, they do a lot of rock records down the hall. We've got walls of guitar amps. So I went out there and just found, you know, an old kind of dusty, like late 60s looking kind of thing, very retro type thing. And I was like, all right, well, let's let's try this one. And so in the mix, and there's a video floating around of it somewhere, I think I posted on Twitter. Uh, in the mix, I just put the amp in the booth and I reamped the Lucid's vocals through that, mic'd them and put them back in the mix through that. And the sound of just that retro, that that vintage amp, 
with a lucid voice just creates the atmosphere of, of of this song and it's something that sure there's probably a plug-in somewhere in here that could maybe gotten close but that amp was just the sound you know i'm just listening to vo- the vocal through the amp turn the knobs and it's like that's the record and that's why i like the hardware and sometimes getting out of the box and just turning the knob on something until it sounds right like that's the fun part that's the experimental part that's where you luck upon something, you know, if you're always just calling up a preset in the box, you don't luck upon something like that, you know? Um, That's what I'm looking for. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to do what I did yesterday. That was what yesterday was for. Listen to that record. Exactly. This notion of you as an iconoclast, this sense of you always striking out to sort of, I guess, as we say, push the edges of the envelope. Where does that come from? Uh, oh, maybe it comes from the RZA. Maybe it all just goes back to 36 Chambers to a certain degree. That's a big part of it. You know, growing up, a lot of people get their musical influences from their older siblings. Um, you know, and I did get those mixtapes from my cousins or whatever. Um, but I have an older sister. And she was really into R&B. We listened to a lot of Janet Jackson, like Rhythm Nation was like her favorite album. You know, there was a lot of that kind of thing, a lot of Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis type of stuff. Um, You know, a lot of Mariah Carey type of vibes as well, like early 90s, you know, all that. So like, I knew this glossy, mainstream, polished pop world but then I saw the other side of what things could be. And so I kind of exist in between. Um, but, you know, I've done major label sessions where experimentation and pushing any kind of envelope was absolutely not allowed. Um, I won't name the producer and the artist that we were working, that I was engineering for, but I was recording a vocal and they were working on harmonies and somebody in the room suggested putting a major seventh harmony on this vocal um and you know for those who are not theory inclined the major seventh is a very normal <laughs> harmony to put on something right like there's the third the fifth those are like the most normal boring right. one could say harmonies pretty regular and then the seventh is right there it's a very regular harmony and the producer was like no we can't be putting all that extra stuff on there we're gonna go over everybody's heads and my heart sank i'm like oh so we're not trying to do i mean i i kept my mouth shut it was my place to say in the session sure. but i'm like oh so we're not trying to do nothing huh we don't we're not trying to have any kind of musical experience any kind of funk any kind of flavor in here and that shit was just very sad to me um you know, but doing indie records, especially now that at Backwoods we've really established what we do and people come to Backwoods for the sound that we've developed, it's a lot more freedom just to be creative. Like, you don't come to Backwoods to hear the same record that you're going to get from even another indie rap label, right? Like, Backwoods don't sound like Stone's Throw. Don't sound Completely like Mellow. singular. You know, it's like Backwoods is Backwoods. And it's the vision from the top. And I feel like I've got a heavy hand in that vision as well because they trust me. Um, but, you know, we, we've developed our thing. And that's the kind of 
engineer and musician, you know, like I don't play drums anymore. That was the past life. But now, you know, I play the mixer and I, I look at it as my, my instrument and myself as an artist in that way. And I want to do something that when you hear it, you're like, "Ooh, I have to go to green to get that sound. I can't just go anywhere to get that sound. There's a personality, there's a singularity within that sound you're talking about. You described yourself as a distortionist earlier. Is mm. there a specific philosophy for when you're mixing a backwards release? Um, it changes over time, you know, and it depends on the project. Uh, I used a lot more saturation actually on Ethiopes than on some, I mean, on, on something else. I mean, I... Definitely, you know, plenty of saturation on, I told Bessie, certainly on Metal Lung, the Shrapnel, uh, and Steel Tip Dove Joint. Um, you know, but I but I also mixed uh, and produced uh, Fielded's, uh, well, first Demisexual Lovelace, she produced that, I mixed that. Um, but we did Young Medusa, the Young Medusa that came out earlier this year. And that's a very pretty, clean you know, R&B record. And it's a different thing. If you think like, you know, if you look at Young Medusa and Ethiopes came out not too far apart time-wise from each other, same label, same team all around it in general, you know, but the records couldn't be different, but that's good because Fielded is Fielded and feel it is not just someone who sings on Billy Wood's record sometimes. She's got her whole own other thing going on, and that's also very exciting. So I need to be able to, you know, shift shift my game to fit in with what they're doing. But at the end of the day, it's me turning the knobs, and so it's gonna it's always going to sound like me a little bit because it's always still coming from me. Yeah. Um, so I just have to – I have to fit myself into what they're doing, Um but that's the job. So, you know, there's not one saturation philosophy, although in general, I have been recently kind of leaning more into saturation also as compression rather than using just a straight up compressor harder, right? Like if I saturate something, automatically it's going to compress a bit and so I can use my compressors less, or maybe not at all. When we recorded Bessie, I just did, uh, for the vocal chain, just the mic and the mic pre. And then I've got this tape emulator box called the Zulu uh, from Handsome Audio, which is super dope. And also one of the few Black-owned audio businesses out there. Uh, so shout out to them. Nice. Um but it's this box, and it's incredible, and it's a tape simulator. It's just the electronics. You don't even plug it in. It's all passive. You don't. There's not even a power plug. But that tape saturation sound, that was the compression on the vocal on I Told Bessie. And so I'm exper experimenting with doing that. We're kind of moving out of the days of everything needs to be super compressed and as loud as possible. Um and I don't like that sound. And every time I try to go for that super compressed sound, I like those mixes less than 
when I have space and dynamics and air in my mixes and you can dive all the way in. When everything's squashed like that, there's no room in there for the listener. It's just shouting in your face. Nah, I want you to come into my mixes. I want you to step inside and have the shit all around you. If I could try to draw a through line in your discography, it's that you're fascinated with extremely talented artists who are under immense pressure to live up to high expectations. What have you learned about how people cope with the weight of everyone's hope around them? Oh, um, you know, I mean, again, I'll look at Woods, um, you know, kind of de facto leader of, of Backwoods. And, you know, when you're, we do unique things with Backwoods and we do interesting records and, you know, passion projects. And I don't mean passion projects like, oh, we're just dumping money in and no one's ever going to love it. Like, no, we, we, we intend on people loving them. Um, but, you know, they're, they're personal records from artists who really mean it. And that's exciting and it's important, you know, um, that intent, the artistic intent, the artistic integrity that translates through the microphone more than anything else. It doesn't matter what gear I'm using, what fancy plugins I've got, blah, 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 blah. The intent from these artists that we work with in backwoods, um, you know, not just backwoods. I work with other labels, but you know, we're, we're, we're on this backwoods thing right now. Um, but it's just so important when they care or when it matters to them, you hear it out of the speakers, you know, when Woods raps, when Prem Rock raps, when Cat Curly Cast, I mean, I don't, I, I can't just list everybody on the label because you all already know, but like every, it, it matters and it's important music and music should be important. It shouldn't just be content for someone to do a silly dance on TikTok too. Music is art. And there should be important art. There should be high-level art. I was having a conversation with somebody recently, and I apologize to whoever it was because I'm blank at this moment, but just about, oh, my homegirl, Callie Marie. She's a she's an engineer and she's an author. Uh, she got a really good book about conversations with women in the audio industry. And we were talking, you know, everyone's been talking about AI art and it's horrible. It's awesome. It's fun. It's ruining lives and whatever. We're kind of in this conversation. Um, But, you know, art snob or art elitist is such a negative connotation. You know, Um, the word elitist is a pejorative term. Snob is a pejorative term. But I'd rather be an art elitist and demand great art and want challenging art and maybe your average you know radio listener thinks i'm an asshole for it all right well fine then you know but in my life i demand demanding art i want challenging art i want art that's going to make me feel some kind of way and i want to make that you know that's what i ingest that's what i want to digest and put back out into the world that's why i'm here is to make something that's going to challenge you because that's what happened to me i didn't get billy woods at first and i was challenged and i still to this day i listen to old records that we do that we did a decade ago plus and i'm like Every now, like once a week, I text Woods. I'm like, man, you was really spitting on gas leak off a of, off a of terror manager. He's like, why are you listening to that? And I'm like, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason, went down X, Y, and Z. But when you said this, and you know, I'm always catching new stuff 
that was said years and years ago because the records are so deep. There's always something more in there. That's what we want, don't we? If we can digest and understand everything off the first listen, why go back? Why listen again? And if someone's only going to listen to it one time because they got everything off the jump, why make it? Trying to grab a piece, light on my feet Barry Sandalit, Flame Mary Jane Fuck with Nefertiti, eat your gula tail Nola Fleur Delete, Dear John Osterman Letters used from my tag, V for Vendettas Rhino Tim's Tony Blundetto Walk with a limp, lie to the devil My mark left, shame the naysayers Curly Hellmuff, don't play a player Can't bear the burden, don't Ursa Major Geecha told the zero, go stun the phases Curls get the money like villain you know, I'm a believer in that the more you learn, the more you understand there's more to learn. You know, um, every time I'm like, oh, I think I got this concept figured out. Oh, well, what about this? Oh, shit. Well, there goes my whole understanding. And, you know, that that's exciting. Like once once I know everything that there is to do again, it's like, all right, well, then that, that, this ain't fun anymore, you know? Um, so I'm hoping like, as far as something that's really clicked in for me, um, over the last year or so is honestly, and I've always strived to do it, but just, I'm just feeling more confident in what I'm capable of. You know, I've done great mixes in the past, you know? I've done shitty mixes in the past. Everybody, you know, everybody, you know, is, is, is on both sides of that spectrum. Um, but I have become more confident in trusting my instincts and thinking a lot less about, well, other people are doing this when they mix. And so I should probably do that. You know, I believed in the records. I've always believed in the records. Um, but it never hurts to see everybody else believing in these records, too. You know, that's never that that. That's never a bad thing. Um, and it's nice, you know, year round you see your name on all the lists or the projects you work on all the lists. And it's like, yo, that's dope. Let me text this to my mom and, and let her see, you know, how it's going. Um, but knowing the impact that the records are having emboldens me to push more and break more boundaries or just believe in the certain techniques and the certain things that I'm doing, because I think a lot about my craft and what I'm bringing to the table. And I think a lot about what it is that I do. So in the moment I can act instinctively, but I go home and I think about, Oh, well, okay, well that piece of gear, if I drive that this way, if I turn this up there, or if I patch this here, what if I put this gear before that gear instead of vice versa? Like, this is the kind of shit I sit around and think about, you know, when I'm supposed to be like watching a show with my wife. I'm over here <laughs> thinking about whatever, um, right. you know, but there's so much more to do. You know, the records to this point have all been great. 15 years I've been with backwards, made great records. 
we got a lot more coming. You know, I already, and I can't say no more than this, but I've already turned in masters for at least four backwards albums for last year, for, 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 for next year, um, for 20, for 2023. I can't say nothing about them. No one's going to know, uh, till, till the time is right. But like, it's early. It's still early. We're just getting started. And I know there's a cliche is the rappers say all this kind of stuff, but it's, it's, it's true. We're just getting started. Open Mike Eagling, you are vibing and vibing hard with the Fly Fidelity Podcast. There's so many directions we could start. I mean, we could fast forward, no pun intended, but I feel for the sake of this project, it's important to rewind. Mm, very clever, sir. Very, very clever. So let's go back for a second. It's 2020. You're coming out of one of the most personal times of your life. You've mm -hmm. easily just released your most vulnerable project. Absolutely. What have you learned about making creative decisions that have minimized the way you've communicated feelings in the past as a way to maximize your security and comfort for this tape? So, so what my brain jumps to is this is the link between creative decisions and vulnerability. Uh, and I think in the past, my creative decisions have, have been like, they've run contrary to anything that would leave me too vulnerable. And, and, and as I've said a few times, like there were always songs on albums that I thought were too vulnerable, too real, too dark, too heavy. I'd always take them off before I put the album out always. So, um, so my create my creative was more focused on looking outward um and um yeah anime trauma divorce was was an album full of vulnerable music and that was a creative decision i never made before um and within that i think i still largely had a lot of similar approaches um i was just more firmly rooted in content involving my actual feelings versus like something going on in the outside world. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's almost kind of hard to say what my creative mindset was going into this one, uh, except that I knew I wanted to rap. Like I just knew I wanted to rap. I just, there's been so much rapping going on in the world and it's so exciting. Mm. And, um, 
And I really felt like I needed to assert my skills. Um, and cause I, I, I have, like I come from street corner rap and battling. I come from like a very active b-boy, uh, you know, freestyling, entertaining, bar heavy sort of uh, origin space. Um, but you know, it became clear to me at some point that that uh, I don't that I don't put that front and center enough. I thought that was always kind of implied, um, but I just wanted to move in a way where that was more front and center. How does it feel being on the other side of this pandemic and having released this collection of songs? Does it feel like you've mastered responding to turning points through your craft to the point of completely combating anything that attempts to disrupt your piece? Um, no, I, I feel, I feel like what, what nobody can disrupt is my productivity. My piece is disrupted all the time. Um, but one thing that, that I, I, any any entity, any force, uh, any factor would have a hard time standing in the way of it stopping me from getting stuff done. Like that won't happen. Um, and since I'm always determined to make things, I'm making them in whatever headspace I happen to be in. And I think just being really true to that is, is always what helps my stuff resonate with people. One, two, one, two. Before we're Bill Cartwright, just real like the arc light. The cartwheels on the dark side The vibe feels like a part that I run until I drop like the far side My heart locked in the archive The car's blocked as a rock slide A large drop of peroxide Belly full of hot lies Spinning quail like Christmas Popeye My head hard like the top of a pie pie Be a fake king And show love with a hate stream I sold drugs in a daydream A home run or a late swing And I'm so stunned when I break things I used to bomb with the zombies I separated like the laundry You can respond to the quandary It's like pop rocking with John B The connection's beyond me Close like your mom to your auntie A busted split star No doubt that it hit hard I wrote the bars in the grimoire I broke it down like a foot fracture I represent who I took after I now the project's based on you repurposing several classic cassette tapes of yours mm-hmm. and it's named after one tape specifically component system talk about the artists on that tape and, and how those artists helped you through different turning points within that time um so let me think of what's on there um the remix to come with it, the Joe Quick remix to come with it, with Raskas, uh, Saphir, and Ahmad is on there. Um, the the song Semi Automatic, which is like you got an inspector deck and and street life from the Wu Tang, and it was on like the High School High soundtrack, um, is on there. Like those are the first two songs that come to mind because it's really not like. It's it's not about the actual song so much as it is the feeling. And it was the feeling I was always chasing, listening to music from that time. And like the songs that I was trying to capture on these tapes always gave me this kind of feeling like like the beat takes me away. Like the rhymes just stay in my head. Like these are songs that have just been with me forever. And and I wanted to make stuff that felt like those songs feel, even though I don't you know, I didn't want to make music that sounded like. 1995 um in terms of its production necessarily 
but there's elements of like melody. There's like, I mean, honestly, even rocking over beats that are sample heavy again, like I have not done that in years. Um, you know, and and when I was listening to music from that time, that's all there was was sample beats. Like there really wasn't a such thing as as like if somebody tried to make an, a sample free beat in 1995, it would have sounded like a Casio keyboard. You know what I'm saying? Like it just wasn't something people did. Um, but, you know, I, I did have to realize that that was part of that feeling that I used to love was like hearing dope samples in a beat, you know, so um that was definitely something I was trying to go back and get, you know, and 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 to make stuff that that uh that had that feel. Yeah, exactly. Talk about what kind of transformation you're going through at this time. What is it about that time that means so much to you culturally and musically outside of what you just spoke, outside of this energy you just spoke of? Uh you mean the music from that time? Right. Um, I mean, I, it just has a lot to do with who I was then too. Like, um, like I grew up in, in, you know, I grew up in a black American ghetto in Chicago and in LA and hip hop was just all around. The first time I heard rap, my mom was playing rap when I got in the car with her, like hip hop was just like the air I breathed. It was all around me. But like, I didn't really connect to it in the early part of my life. I didn't like it that much. Like it reminded me too much of what was going on outside, which I didn't like, you know, like it was, this was the crack era. Like this was, you know, very dangerous times in the early eighties. And I didn't want to necessarily experience that in the music I was listening to. So I was listening to like a lot of rock music and, and R and B and, um, you know, whatever other stuff I could, I could get my ears on. Um, but then like when I was like, I want to say 12, 13 years old and like a one month span, I got the roots. Do you want more commons resurrection? Old dirty bastard return to the 36 chambers and midnight marauders. And like, I connected to them albums so hard. Like they resonated with me so deep. Like they changed my brain somehow, like listening to these albums. And then I just really fell in love with a certain style of hip hop mm. from there. Like I really deeply fell in love with it. It's like, so some of the albums that came out like right after that were like Jesus, um, liquid swords, um, Buster rhymes, the coming, like, like just because of the age I was and how deeply in love and obsessed I was with hip hop, like these projects were formative to me. And, and a lot of that can also be said for the music I was hearing on college radio at that time, um, by a lot of acts that weren't so big, but it still had that vibe that I was searching for. Um, and I think, I think this has a lot to do with like me being, 13, 14 years old and just being in love with something and like learning about the world through hip hop. Like I remember my godfather printed me out and he had to print it out of his job. It was like this 30 page long thing from this website called like the rap dictionary. And it was mm. just like all the meanings of all these terms you would hear in rap songs. 
uh, like it was like a lot of like Wu-Tang five percenter stuff in there. Like and I like it, it was just like this whole world that just opened up to me, like with this music and, and learning about all these references and like really legit learning about the world. And and I don't know, the music was just so exciting to me. And I just I don't know. Um, I guess I I, I I wanted to reconnect with all of that. Can you remember the first album or the first artist that triggered you to write your first rhymes? I think when I wrote my first rhyme, uh, I was, I think I was trying to sound like Dell, I think. Um, but you know, uh, early, early writers that were really important to me, uh, rhyme fest common, um, gosh, who else? Um, uh, Pasta News, De La Soul, uh, these like, the, you know, these are like when I was writing, like I wanted to be as good or as impressive as like those people, you know? That's interesting. You talking about wanting to be like Dell. I was wondering as to if you've ever listened to music from that period and, experienced any competing thoughts as an artist of how you would twist a song yourself the same way let's say a producer might have the same thoughts about twisting the way a beat sounds and the way that might be made can you share any you know recollections of imitation as a form of learning for you in the beginning starting out i remember uh one of the first songs i wrote when i actually started writing songs in college like i literally like did not know how to write a hook. So like I listened to a Razzcast song. He was another big writer for me. Um, God, it, it was called, the song's called H2O something. Um, and that's gangster without banging a set. Pop, 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 pop. And like, just like, I listened to that song. I'm like, okay, that's a hook. A hook is where you say, uh, you say, you repeat the same pattern because that's what he did on that song. So like the, the first hook I wrote used that exact same pattern. Um, uh, something, uh, if say yes, if you know my flow, like, like I use the same pattern. Cause that's like, I did not know how to do it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, so I literally <laughs> just like, like looked at what he did and, and decided to just, copied his pattern because I didn't know what else to do, you know? Incredible. Well, it's, it's interesting comparing a distance back then to where we're at today. And you do reference hooks on this album. You talk about hooks making you cry when you write them. Can you speak mm. a little to that maybe? Um, I, you know, that's a lot to do with, um, like I, I have, I just have like, like where, where hooks come from in me is like a very like special place. Um, and sometimes it takes me a long time to get there. Sometimes it happens real fast, but like when I got it, I know it. And like, it can really affect me, uh, emotionally. Like, and even, even if, even if the song itself isn't emotional, it's just like the, the, the place where that comes from in me, it's just like a sensitive and special place. So like a song like qualifiers, like that hook, I remember getting emotional writing that hook, just not because of the content of it, but just like, Oh, I found it. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and really just being excited to like 
get this get like like finish the song you know it's very much coming from a meditative place isn't it this place you're talking mm-hmm. about this space you're talking about yeah it's not conscious you know what i'm saying like it's it's this real kind of like communion i have to have with myself to have the right melody and find the right words and be communicating the right thing you know right right speaking of spaces when you're making a project with a transportive quality as these songs featured on this project are there any risks that come with enjoying the comfort so much that it could overlap into this this present mic and make it easier to get lost um I think the danger is more like not wanting to paint myself into a corner with it more than anything. Like, like I have looked back to find a thing and I have found it, but I cannot stay there. Uh, even though it's nice, you know what I'm saying? Like, I still have to find the next thing. Like as an artist, like you always have to find the next thing. And cause the, the, the whack thing to do would be to make like, you know, another tape, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like of the same ilk, like, you know what I'm saying? And, or, or at least that's the thing that, that I think would be kind of corny. Like it would be kind of like commercially, like it, it would be done for commercial reasons because I don't have another idea, you know? And I, and I'm just, I never want to be that like where I'm just doing the same shit over and over again. You know, where do you think you've grown the most making this collection of songs? Um, I think being comfortable with just making a rap song. Because I think for so long, I thought that I needed to do so much more, um, that I needed to have a hook and a bridge and a three-part harmony and all of this stuff. That's great, you know? But like, there's a lot of value, both to me and the listeners, uh, with just making a rap song, you know? And, And I think like my going back around to embrace that has really it's really helped me be more productive I was thinking about all the stuff I said before sitting by myself my insides was out felt weird sitting by myself yesterday is safer cuz you already know what happened and every album Everyone is a little collection of pieces of yesterdays I don't always have the words for the feelings So I decided to make you a tape Usually I like to, I like to arrange things in like a very like specific way sentence almost it's like you know i've I've made albums where they're to be enjoyed that way this one i definitely made more um thinking of people being able to listen to songs independently from each other mm. yeah i think there's a so power if, in that uh, it, it's yeah and it, it it felt powerful for me because i don't think i've ever really done that you know there's a lot to be said about this connection to you leaving vulnerability in the past and embracing you talk about old rage on one of the songs to work through your emotions can you talk about your practice as a form of rebellion and in your own words burning whatever it was to cut through the past and push your pen forward um there's a lot there um so okay old rage uh so my whole thing, my whole thing, like my whole, like, let's, let's call it my therapy journey, right? It's about being able to like feel my feelings. 
Um, and and I tend to have to be very intentional about that because feelings get trapped in me because I'm not very good at like allowing them to process. So, you know, the great thing that I took from making anime trauma and divorce was to actively use my music as a way to help me process my feelings. And and so, you know, the whole album of anime trauma divorce was an example of that. Um, but in this case, like there's just instances of that. And and those particular feelings I was working through were greatly helped by me making those songs. What's going on? If you are still listening to this episode and enjoying the podcast, why not become a patron of Fly Fidelity at patreon.com slash flyfidelity. Becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week. It also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter, you'll be able to access exclusive content to you, including patron updates, offers and discounts, a monthly secret podcast, Podcast, early access and so much more what would be an example of some songs in 96 97 that were helping you process your feelings and helping you navigate through you know some important turning points for you well at that time i didn't i wasn't using the music for that necessarily um at that time, like I didn't have a, I didn't have a handle on, you know, what my real relationship to my feelings was. I was just, you know, living and pushing through and and collecting traumas and, you know, um, and a lot of the, the music was helping me because like the kind of, the kind of power that music has in my mind when I enjoy it, like the places it can take me like that in itself is just helpful. But I, w- I wasn't sophisticated enough to be using music back then like I use it now. City, no one I knew took pity the moon with me. Every utterance of nature sound, Yogi Bogey Box, iridescent Peleus clouds. I studied the old scrolls with sincerity, the prosperity of the sole proprietor. Climbed higher, gin soaked raisins by the fire while I strummed these blues, ducking bad news in several precincts. This machine in my hands allows me to talk with dead niggas. Mitochondrial Eve, the Mocha Lisa, bogus rebreather, eyes full of fate, relapsed meat eater with a handful of bullet grapes. Bodine moving. And quiet as ghost feet, a sip is earned, the plot dreading this next turn. I mean, some of these collaborations, they feel like your deepest collaborations yet. Um, deep in, in the sense of, uh, like, what, what do you mean by deep? I mean, meaningful. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because um, I have good friends that are close to me that are on it. I have old friends that, that I've been rapping with forever who are on it. I have people uh diamond d mad lib who i've been fans of almost my whole life that are on it so yeah like every every one of them means a lot to me there's a line on 79th and stony island where you say i'm in a weird place creatively and Mm -hmm. dave and rift keep saving me where did that place come from and when did you leave that place oh i'm still uh in it 
Uh, but me and Dave and Rift are actually figuring it out kind of together. We've been making a bunch of music and, it, and it's just, I found it just, just, just super helpful um, to, you know, have close co collaborators here and we're meeting regularly and making stuff. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it was just a weird place uh, of, of, of making anime trauma divorce and then mm. having that already in a can and then the pandemic happening and stopping the world. And, and then I released this album, you know, in the middle of that and, you know, and in the act of putting it out was quite, you know, difficult uh, emotionally. Um, and just knowing that I wanted to make more stuff, but not like this is probably the first album I ever that I've ever made that didn't does not have a central clear thesis. Like there, there there's no topic sentence. There's no, you know, there's no intro to the essay. Like it's it's really just a series of feelings and 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 um and some and 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 a lot of aesthetics that I'm like chasing and trying to execute, but it's not like you know, it's not like rappers will die of natural causes. It's not like brick body kids still daydream. It's like rap music, like me making rap songs that I really like because I need to, you know? Yeah. You talk about your previous albums being a collection of yesterdays. This one too. How do you think you're cultivating a craft and elevating it for tomorrow? Cultivating the craft and elevating it for tomorrow. Um, like I said, there's just a lot of really exciting rap in the world right now. And I feel like, you know, I'm a guy who like, let's say I've been, I played, let's say I played competitive basketball. Um, and, you know, I've been playing on the court in my house for the last like six, seven years. And I've gone to the local rec center and I'm seeing all of these dudes balling. And it's just so exciting to like go out there and show what I can do. And like that sort of like, it, it's, it's not quite competition, but this is the excitement of what's happening right now is like really informing in a lot of ways, my relationship to craft now because like i just been doing things my own way right and i and i developed a style that's like very much mine but i think it's safe to say i got a little bored with it really and and then yeah and then i i like and just listening to you know arm and hammer listening to how like uh rap ferrera style has evolved like you know and and these are people who I've known for years, you know, and 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 they're pushing and like Chris and like they're pushing things to a place, you know, and it's it's like it's just exciting because it's 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 causing me to do the same thing, you know. I used to stand on the phone book, the turnover off the no look, shook up cold as a ghost foot. I used to cry when I wrote hooks. Where's the dry in my notebook? 
everything's high octane. I like to hide in the quad train, sell it for high on the blockchain. But no keys fit the keyhole, pick up the team like a veto. Tall, we big as a beanpole. I've seen the checklist, we've done several. You made a spoon out of gunmetal. I picked the daisy to one pedal. And do they love me? You love me not. I got the hands, I'm unsettled. I made a wish on the dishwater. I want a nap and a big offer. I love rap, it's a bit awkward. I got whooped with a pro kid. I did a stroll called the broke leg. Shout out to werewolves, the dope head. Yeah. Burn whatever it was for the bug. Dream was hung from a tree. From a tree. See the monster in me. See the monster. See the monster in me. See the monster. Cold American The first song I made with Quelle Chris was probably like 2011 or 2012 or something. Um, and he's just, you know, that's just, that's that's my brother right there. Just seen him a bunch of places over the years and, and connect and reconnect all the time. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, the answer sometimes is right under your nose and you just don't really like, it just takes you a while to get there. Like, yeah, it just like, while I was making this, this music, it just occurred to me, like, wait a minute. Like, I can literally just ask Quilla Chris for some beats. Like, why have I not done that in years? You know, and. And just literally just did that, you know, just literally just say, hey, what up? Like, what's 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 your output like? You got a pack like what's what's going on? You know what I'm saying? And 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 it's it's just that thing of like, yeah, like, you know, I, I, I've been dealing with a lot of the same people over the, the last few years and it's great. But it's like, oh, my gosh, I, just just really taking stock of the resources that I have at my disposal and just trying to make the most of it. And, you know, just reconnecting with him. Um. <laughs> It's just incredible. It really feels like a special song for you. It really feels like we we talked about that meditative space that hooks come from earlier. Feels mm -hmm. like that beat kind of transfers the same energy on this project. And it feels like it was that kind of relationship making this right into this. Yeah, uh, I, I teared up when I first heard that beat. Oh, it, wow. it, 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 it literally sounded like everything I was trying to do. It sounded like. 1995 waiting for the train in the snow in Chicago. Like that's what it sounded exactly like that. And that's exactly like the, the colors that I wanted to paint. You know, When you look back on Chicago and LA being, you know, both connective parts of your creative identity, what do you see being the biggest differences in terms of styles and value? Uh, you know, uh, Chicago, at least the Chicago I grew up in is very punchline heavy. Um, that's where the emphasis is and in, in, in rhyme was like, how do you blow everybody's mind with this this punchline? And then uh in LA is very style heavy. Yeah. Um LA is all about can you style? Like what is your style? Like what is what is your unique approach to putting to putting patterns together, you know? And um so those those two value systems I'm just I'm I'm always in communion with. Like I'm always thinking about that when I'm writing rhymes. Going back to these collaborations, what about Burner Account with Armin Hammer? How does that happen? Um, again, brothers I've known for years, and you know, just to see where they're pushing, to 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 hear how they're approaching. Like they sent like, and and they've been dope forever, but they sound like monsters now, you know. And and um, you know, I just knew I needed a little bit of that. 
You know, I needed a little bit of that. Like, like when I, I, when I'm talking about going to the rec center and, and, and balling with the, with the, with the people I see out there killing it, like them too, you know, and, and just like, and, and again, like I need people to know, like I'm right there with them. You know what I'm saying? Like, I need people to really know that. Like, it's not just about, it's not just about, oh, we, we go on tour together sometimes or, or, or they'll, you know, they'll be on my podcast. Like, no, like this craft is sacred. You know what I'm saying? And like this, you know, just, just, I, I really want to show the, 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 the community aspect of, of, of the us practitioners, you know? With my devices charged, I eat an edible and write some bars. I script illegible, it's nice and large. And I awaken when the lights come on. I'm really feeling out a crisis card. It's one, two, counting vacation days. And day one, outrun annihilation waves. And day two, rescue a HBCU. And day three, it's a Haiti with a Haitian Davis. One, two, middle aged poster child. I heard I gotta put the potion down. I heard it's time to put the vocals in. I need to try and get new approach again to really know how it's supposed to sound. It's one, I'm in the jungle. Like Axel Rose And if you float through the hood Keep your capsule closed If you roll through again It'll suck you in You hit the pump pump Jump into an action pose Just one, two Trying to get my heart restored I need some money In the harpsichord Sent to the dummy In apartment four Fitty one of you Was out for blood Then I would run at you Across the floor It goes Yeah, you know The thing is The magical part Is so far away From the part that can communicate about the magic so the conversation we're having right now you're talking to my front brain i'm trying to like give clear answers i'm trying to be a little entertaining and like mm-hmm. you know the magical part of me uh it can't really talk like it can make choices mm. it can experience things but it can't really put itself in a context to communicate itself um in this sort of you know, in, in, in conversation, like it, it really doesn't manifest that way. Um, you know, that's why like you, like there's stuff on albums, like you can ask me why I did it. And I can tell you, I do not know because my front brain actually doesn't know. It was like the rest right. of me at work, you know, it was a moment. Mm-hmm. Speaking of moments and magic, there's a lot of that in these tracks that diamond D produce. What was that like working with Diamond T and actually being in a studio hands on? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Like unbelievable. Like pinch myself. Like, is this really happening? Is is Diamond D playing beats he made for me? And I have to like somehow pick. Like, you know what I'm saying? It, it just <laughs> it, it didn't make any sense. Um it was, it, you know, it's still it's still kind of unbelievable to me that I can text him. It's still kind of unbelievable to me that, like, I have a relationship with him where where we could mess around and make more music together. It's just it's 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 it's, it's dream come true type stuff for me. It is. And it is for us as well. Hearing these tracks, I would love to hear more from you guys. Is there more coming from you guys? Um, I mean, nothing's been started yet, but I think like now that, like I said, we have a relationship, yeah. I I. I certainly see me, um, you know, 
in enjoying that collaboration again. What does the future hold, man? Um, more more choices I can't explain. Um, more more magic that like I have to keep secret until you know when business aligns and I'm able to like you know what I'm saying all that stuff that like the stuff that's like it sometimes it gets frustrating um cuz magic happens when magic happens like there's there's stuff I'm sitting on right now uh some of the stuff that me Dave and Rift have been doing is like this is incredible been thinking about retiring looking back I sure could have used a good rivalry I hated some folks but they kept it too catchable I had a couple ops but they was all supernatural I'm getting too old my first album title might have been too bold I conjured up a gremlin how do I get rid of you I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people saw you with me where you were.